Good evening. It's average evening by your response, but it is great to see you. I'm glad you're here. I wouldn't have a job if you stopped coming, so I'm always glad to see you tonight. You know, an, an introduction uh, is a significant thing, whether it's an introduction to a sermon, whether it's an introduction at a political rally or whatever. I remember 20 years ago going to uh, a Baptist State Convention meeting. Now, I've been to one in Texas and one in Louisiana in 30 years. That's probably all I can ever handle of those state convention meetings. But I'll never forget, there were two guys running for president of the convention. And the way they did it, they would have one of their, their buddies come up and nominate them and put their name out there, and then you'd have a ballot and you'd vote on them. So it was a controversial time, and there was two pastors running against each other. One of the pastors was kind of a lightning rod. He had uh, made a lot of strong statements, and he'd gotten a lot of criticisms. And one of the men in his church got up and introduced him, and he gives this, this glowing, he was a good speaker, about his pastor this, his pastor that. I know he's had some, uh, he said some things that are strong, but he's good, this and that. Then he ended, he said, he's not a disaster, he is my pastor. (laughs) And we voted and the guy lost. So, but you know, I thought that's the kind of introduction Greg Phillips might give me, you know. But 20 years later, that was 1996, I still remember that introduction. Tonight, we're starting a sermon series in the book of Acts. We're going to look at Acts chapter 1 and 2 this fall. Now, we may dive into the next 26 chapters in January. I don't know about that, but I I call these the, uh, this is the roots of our Christianity. This is the roots of our faith in Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2. And it's the introduction. Well, I want to tell you, it's a, to me, it's a powerful introduction we're going to see tonight. Let me give you a little background on Acts. Acts was written uh, by God through a guy named Luke. Luke was a Greek man, which is significant. He traveled with the the Jewish Paul. Uh, He was a medical doctor, if you were to look in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. It's not on our screens, but Colossians 4, 14, it talks about Luke being a doctor. We believe it was written about AD 60 to 64, 65, probably when Paul was in prison. Luke was with him. He was a traveling companion. And uh, some, some scholars believe it was written a lot later than that, but it was probably written about that time. Luke also wrote another book in the Bible. God wrote it through him. Was it Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? What do you guess? Come on, help me, Bible scholars. It was Luke. And here would be an interesting thing for you to do sometime. Read the Gospel of Luke and then immediately read Acts because it is the continuation of, of the Gospel. It's really the, the continuation of the bridge of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John until the rest of the New Testament. So let's dive into this. Even the name Acts is an interesting name. We'll see in just a, a second. But I want to kick this off tonight in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And, and, and I want to begin with this. This is an interesting statement, but stay with me. The Gospels are the starting point of Jesus' ministry. You ever thought about that? I mean, when I, when I said this today, I thought this almost sounds like heresy. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the starting point of Jesus' ministry. Well, I'm going to back it up from Scripture. Look in verse 1. In my first book, I told you, Theopolis about everything Jesus 
began to do and teach. Isn't that interesting? Jesus began to do and teach. Let me share with you some thoughts. Leave verse 1 up there. You see it says, uh, in my first book, the word book there was a, a Greek word for a historical narrative. It was often used to describe a historical narrative that was three volumes long. Well, Luke got two volumes written, didn't he? Luke and Acts. If you get to the end of Acts, it's, it, it, the book of Acts ends abruptly. It ends strangely. It's almost like, did Luke uh, mean to write another volume? I've heard some scholars say maybe Luke wrote some of the, uh, the pastoral epistles. I, I don't think so. I think those were from Paul. But uh, nevertheless, it was the word for a historical narrative. And by the way, uh, it is a true historical narrative, which a historical narrative should be true. Uh, I, love, I love the name Theopolis. Isn't that an interesting name? Jacob Pierce was a member of our church for many years, and Jacob's middle name was Theopolis. It was Theopolis. What does the name Theopolis mean? It's made up of two Greek words, Theo, which means God, and it's made up of the word phileia, which was the word for brotherly love. Theopolis meant a friend of God or a lover of God. We don't know much about Theopolis. Was he a Christian? Was he a seeker uh, of the gospel? He certainly may have been. We're going to see in Luke chapter 1 in a moment where Luke addresses Theopolis at the beginning of this book. And he calls him, uh, basically he honors him with the title. So he may have been a Roman official. Church tradition says Theopolis was the cousin of Domitian, who was a uh, Roman emperor later on. It says here, everything Jesus began to do and teach. Have you ever thought about this? The Gospels are the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The Gospels didn't end the Jesus story didn't end in Luke 24, Matthew 28, Mark 16, or John 21. That was just the beginning. Now, I think that's, that's neat. Now, let me help you with that. The word Acts, uh, what does that mean? Isn't that a strange name for a book, the book of Acts? Well, here's the thought behind what it may mean. It may have meant the Acts of the Apostle. What you're going to see in the next 28 chapters are the Acts that God did through the Apostles. Some scholars say it's talking about the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Some say it's the acts of the Spirit through the apostles. Well, let me give you another idea. Anytime you talk about it being the acts of the Spirit, you're also talking about being the acts of Jesus Christ. If it's the acts of the Spirit, it's the acts of the Son. If it's the acts of the Son, it's the acts of the Father. When I was in graduate school, I took a class in the Holy Spirit. I will sadden you by telling you I made a B in that class, which uh, may attest to my spiritual life. We had a wonderful theology professor named Dr. Bert Dominey. And Dr. Dominey, it was on a Monday night. And it was in the fall, and he loved Monday night football. So we got out early. We bonded very quickly in that class. But I never forget what Dr. Dominey said. He said, boys, he said, when you talk about being full of the Spirit... That's synonymous with being full of Jesus. And when you talk about being full of Jesus, that's synonymous with being full of the Holy Spirit. And when you talk about being spirit-led, that's being father-led. And when you talk about being father-led, that's being spirit-led. And when you talk about being spirit-led, that's being son-led. So the acts of the Holy Spirit is the continued acts of Jesus Christ through his spirit. Isn't that neat? What's to me? <laughs> Look in verse 2. 
Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. To me, it's a pretty neat concept to think that the Gospels are the starting point of Jesus' ministry. By the way, you know what we're doing here tonight? We're doing the Jesus' ministry 2,000 years later. Isn't that cool? This is the continuation of the Jesus' ministry. Here's the second thing we see in this introduction, this beginning point of Acts. Never forget the death and the resurrection of Jesus is our foundation. The resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is never an add-on to what we do. It is the foundation of who we are. It's the foundation of who we are. Look in verse 3. During the 40 days after his crucifixion, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive, and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Leave that. Let's go to Luke chapter 1 first. Let's go to Luke chapter 1. I want you to see over here, because this is important. This is... The beginning of this book that came before Acts, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used the eyewitness reports. Did you get that? They used what reports? The eyewitnesses circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, having what? Carefully investigated from the beginning, I have decided to write a careful account for you, most honorable Theopolis, And verse 4, so you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught. Now, this is, that's very significant, the wording there. Luke was a what? You remember what I said a a moment ago? He was a what by trade? He was a doctor, okay? Gene, I'm fixing to blow up Will's head here, so you may have to humble him when you get him home. But women are good at humbling their men. Y'all notice that? The doctors I know are smart people. Now, they're not as smart as preachers, but they're smart. <laughs> and, and most doctors, and, and certainly will, are, are people who, who remember things very well, who remember details well. You know, you go in and you go, well, I'm taking this pill and this pill and this pill. Is this okay? Oh, sure. Then you say, well, I'm taking uh, aspirin and some STP at night. Uh, and they said, well, that's not good for you. You know, I'd have to ha- carry around a medical dictionary to look everything up or Google or whatever. But it's amazing, it amazes me how well doctors can remember facts and details. And, and, and just to be a medical doctor, you have to have a gifting intellectually, I believe, that I certainly don't have to be able to recall things and, and to be detail-focused. And to, uh, most doctors, wouldn't you say, Gene, are pretty rational and factual? They're not as emotional maybe as... Some people, which is uh, probably good or bad. We won't get into that tonight. They can talk to Brandon about that in marriage counseling. But (laughs) Luke was a doctor. Folks, Luke was an intelligent, rational, fact-oriented, detail-oriented person. And he says in verse 3, during the 40 days after his crucifixion, the word crucifixion here is the word passion. It means to experience evil. Listen, when Jesus went to the cross, he had the sins of the world dumped on him. He experienced evil firsthand. It means to suffer and oftentimes to suffer for someone else. Folks, he's bringing us back right in the beginning of this book. 
He's saying, listen, the crucifixion of Christ was for you and me. The sinless one suffered evil. He suffered for the sins of us, not for, not for his own sins. But he died, but he didn't stay dead. Folks, dying is big enough, but coming back to life is gigantic, isn't it? He came back to life. Look, look what it says. During the 40 days after his crucifixion, he appeared to his apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways he was actually alive. Listen, if you're taking notes, write this down. That word prove there is a gigantic biblical word. It means an infallible proof. It means a, a proof without error. It is perfect proof with certainty. It is demonstrable evidence. Are you following me? Infallible proof, infallible evidence, demonstrable proof. Cindy, you'll remember this. Uh, you'll remember the whole story. But back when I was in high school, I learned to kick a football pretty good. In fact, going into my junior year, I was going to be our kicker as well as I played on offense and defense. And, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm being humble, but I, I was rather good at it, if I might say. Until I made a mistake and broke my right toe. And by the way, if you don't know anything about football, if you're right-footed and you break your right big toe, your kicking career is over pretty much at that point. So I never, never did kick in a game, although I'm sure I would have been a hero and I would have been very good. I never did. And years later, I, I was still convinced that I could kick well. And my brother's a high school football coach. And you remember this? We were up at his place in Tennessee. And I kept telling him that I'm sure I could still kick a 20-yard field goal, 30-yard field goal. And he said, you know what? Let's go see. And I was certain I could do it. We went out there. You remember this, Cindy? And we, she doesn't remember. She blocked it out. And, and so we put a ball on a tee, and I was trying to kick it through the, the goalpost. And after about eight times, my brother got the football, shook his head, and, and, and just laughed and walked off. It was demonstrable evidence I absolutely could not do it, right? And here's what he's saying here, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was demonstrable evidence. A theologian named Bernard Ram says this, this biblical word here, prove, is the strongest Greek word for a legal type of evidence that Jesus Christ, by proof, died and he arose. In verse 3, it says that he was alive. That literally means that he was warm. Folks, I don't want to get into details, but if you've ever touched someone who's not alive, they're not warm anymore. That he was alive, that, that he was warm. In verse 4, once when he was eating with them, the word eating literally means to, to take salt with someone in the, in the ancient culture. And in Jesus' world, when it talks about Jesus eating with sinners, we think about, you know, you can go up to a complete stranger and say you want to go get a burger, and it's no big deal. You sit far from each other, you know, and you don't have to touch. But for them, eating was a big deal. You went to someone's house, you reclined when you ate. It was real fellowship. And, and you didn't eat with dead people right? I mean, seriously, you do not have to be a Bible scholar to understand that. And so that was a huge sign of the physicalness, physical life of Jesus Christ, that they shared salt with him, that they ate with him. Folks, in the New Testament, there's a 10 or 11, depending on how you count them, resurrection appearances. Jesus Christ, he appeared to one person at a time. He appeared to disciples. He appeared to 500 at one time. Some scholars believe the record of the appearances in the New Testament are just a sample of how many other times he may have appeared to people. Just like it says in John, the miracles recorded in the Gospels are, are a small amount compared to what Jesus actually did. Folks, Jesus Christ came back to life. It's demonstrable. They touched him. They saw him. They heard him. He ate with them. 
Ghosts don't eat is my best recollection of ghosts. Dr. Michael Lacone is is a great scholar. And he's written a book about the resurrection. He said this. He said, after looking through 600 pages of of arguments for and against the resurrection of Christ, he said, any scholar who's honest and critical, he doesn't mean critical in a negative way, but in a, in a scientific way, will come away saying that the evidence shows Jesus Christ came back to life. Man, isn't this great? The Acts starts off with this, and it says, hey, the Gospels, how wonderful the Gospels are. That's just the beginning of Christ's ministry. And never forget, our roots always take us back to Jesus Christ. Christ died on that cross for our sins, but death didn't keep him down. He walked out of the tomb. Isn't that wonderful? That's pretty good introduction points. Here's the third thing you're not going to like at all. Waiting is the key to victory. How many of you like to wait? Good, good. There's no liars in here because I was going to keep you till 8 o'clock if you said you did. Verse 4 once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he has promised. As I've told you before, talking to him about the kingdom, God's rule, God's reign. The Bible says the kingdom of God is within you if you're a Christian. The kingdom of God, uh, God's will is done perfectly in heaven, and someday it will be done in the, in the, in the ultimate heaven and earth when all said and done. Do you know what he told them here? He said, guys... I got tremendous plans for you. Isn't that great? Don't you like to hear that? And then he says, now I want you to cool your heels and wait for a while. Don't you love that? They were going to have to wait about 10 days. But you know what? They were sad because Jesus had left them, but they were fired up. They were fired up too. And the last thing you want to do to someone who's fired up is tell them to wait. That's exactly what Jesus told them. Some of you are fired up. Some of you aren't fired up. You need to get fired up. But sometimes Jesus says, here's what I want you to do right now. I want you to wait. Let me give you three reasons why Jesus says wait. These aren't exhaustive, but they're, they, they are demonstrating this story. Sometimes he says, wait so you'll be ready. Sometimes he says, wait so we will be ready. They were fixing to be a part of the most unbelievable experience ever in 10 days but they weren't ready for it right then Jesus said guys what I want you to do right now is hold your horses gather together and wait I hope this church and I hope people in this church that we want to take the world for Jesus Christ and we got plans and excitement sometimes Jesus says that is exactly where I want your heart but I want you to hold it right now. Some of you may, you're you're wanting to get married or you're wanting to get divorced or you're wanting to quit or you're wanting to take a new job or you're wanting to move. And the best thing you can do and the thing God may be telling you to do right now is wait, is wait. Never a fun thing, but a right thing. Psalms 4610 always rings my bell, especially the first part of it. Be still and know that I am God. Wow. Wow. That last part of it, I'll be honored in every nation. I will be honored throughout the world. But the God who's going to be honored throughout every nation throughout the world looks at you and me and says, be still and know that I am God. You can't be moving and be still at the same time, can you? 
Sometimes God just tells us to wait because he's trying to get us ready. Here's the second thing. He tells us to, w- to wait to get them ready so others will be ready. Folks, we're going to see in Acts chapter 2 in the following weeks that the day of Pentecost happens. But the people who are going to be influenced by it weren't ready yet. They may not have been in Jerusalem at this point. They needed to wait so other people would be ready. You see, you may need to wait on getting married. Now, if you're married, you're in good shape. Don't pay attention to what I'm saying now. But if you're single, you may need to be waiting because God's got to get that other person ready. You go, man, I need to have that job. Well, they probably need to offer it to you first. <laughs> Maybe that place is getting ready where, 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 where you can be ready for them. Maybe it's a ministry opportunity. Man, I remember as a young preacher, I wanted to pastor so bad. I mean, I would drive by churches and knock on the, is your pastor about ready to quit? (laughs) I didn't, but I'd sit by the phone. Just I wasn't waiting on a girl to call. I was waiting on a pulpit committee to call. That was the sweetest sound I could have heard. And it was about a year and a half before I finally got my first church. But it was God. It was absolutely the right time. Sometimes God says wait because he's getting them ready. Here's the third thing to always remember in the waiting circle is we wait because God's timing is always perfect. You know, isn't that great? God's timing is always, well, it's going to be perfect for them. It's perfect for others. It's perfect for you. God's never late. God's not asleep. God's timing is always perfect. I shared this before, but I want to share it again. In 1970, a scientist named Walter Miskell launched a classic experiment. He had four-year-olds in a room and had a video camera in the room. Obviously, their parents were well aware of what was going on. He put a bell and a marshmallow in there. And he told them, he said, look, if y'all can wait until I come back in, you'll get two marshmallows. If you can't wait, ring the bell. I'll come in and you can have one marshmallow. So they videotaped the kids. They'd squirm. They'd cover their eyes. Some couldn't even wait a minute and they'd be hitting the bell. Some made it 15 minutes. Here's what they found out years later. The children who waited the longest, and they followed these kids for about 25 years, got higher scores on their SAT and their ACTs. They got into better colleges and on average had a much better adult outcomes. The children who rang the bell the quickest were more likely to become bullies. They received the worst teacher in parental evaluations 10 years later and more, were more likely to have a drug problem at 32. And the scientists said it shows that people who can learn to wait are the ones that may have the most success in life. Sometimes God says we just need to wait. Don't like that. I'll be honest with you, I hate that. I don't mind it for you, and I can counsel you through that. I just don't like it for me. (laughs) Acts starts out with a boom. Jesus' ministry is just beginning Don't forget, man, Jesus died and he arose. Hang your hat on that. Never let go of it. And by the way, you're going to have to wait a lot to be in God's will. Let me tell you a a neat little thought. Follow God's will. Don't force it. Follow God's will. Don't force it. And, And here's something I read that I think is so great. Beyond God's weight is always something great. Beyond God's weight is always something great. How many times in your life or my life have we missed it? Because we forced God's will and didn't follow it. 
Lastly, let me share this with you. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is all important. Almost every one of these points could have been a separate sermon, but I didn't think you wanted a four-part sermon series tonight, even though I hadn't preached in a week and a half. So I thought I'd push it all in one. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Look in verse 5. John baptized with water, but just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The word baptized means to emerge or to submerge something. The picture of a, in the Greek of the baptism is of a ship sinking. That's why it's Baptist. We get our names from baptism. And we baptize by immersion because we believe that is what the biblical word means. It's radical. It was radical in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, and this wasn't always true in Judaism, but when a person wanted to convert to Judaism, if it was a man, listen to this, they had to do three things. They had to get circumcised, they had to get baptized, and they had to make a sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem. Folks, we don't, we're not that demanding, are we? You think about it. What does it mean to be baptized with the Spirit? Here's what I've heard a lot through the years. I've heard people say, I was saved at 15, and then I was baptized with the Spirit at 20. Do you, do you, you know what they may be saying there? They, 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 they may be saying, I, I became a Christian at 15, and I spoke in tongues at, at 20. Now, I want to say this, and I'll talk to any of you after church or anytime we need to, uh, if you disagree with me on this one way or the other, I, I, don't, I don't think speaking in tongues is invalid. I think it needs to be done properly. But I think that's a wrong understanding of what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Baptism in the Holy Spirit is a once and for all thing that happens when we are saved. We can be filled with the Spirit, and we should be many, many times. In 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. A significant verse. It said, some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free. But we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit. And we all share the same spirit. Folks, baptism is identification. When we baptize someone up here, they are identifying with our church. They are identifying with the church universal. And they are identifying with Jesus Christ. When you were saved, you were baptized, purified, immersed in God and in the Holy Spirit. You were identified with Jesus Christ. And, and so if someone says they speak in tongues and they do it biblically right, that's okay. But to say I, I got saved at 20 and got the Holy Spirit at 25... Theologically, that's impossible. Romans 8 9, listen to this very important verse. It says, but you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit, if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Christ. See, I can't be saved without the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? You don't get Jesus and not get the Spirit. They're the same package, friend. Isn't that good? Uh, and, and, And... do you need a fresh touch of the Holy Spirit on your life? Absolutely. You need it every day. That's called being filled with the Spirit. Many of us have the Holy Spirit bottled up in our big toe. We need to let Him go. We need to let Him fill us and dominate us and, and control us. There's fixing to be some people baptized in the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And, and this was a unique thing because these people were Christ followers, but many of them didn't have the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit hadn't come to everyone at this point. The Holy Spirit's fixing to come to everyone at this point in Acts chapter 2. And the great news is when you got saved, whether it was 100 years ago for some of you, or 5 years ago, or 2 years ago, or 1 year ago, the Holy Spirit was here and He came in you when Jesus did. That's being baptized and immersed in the Holy Spirit. 
There was a Hollywood producer that said every great movie begins with an earthquake and then works itself to a climax. (laughs) In other words, it begins strong and then it ends strong. I think if you were to read the end of Acts chapter uh, 28, you'd read the last four or five chapters in Acts, you would find out it ends strong. But in my opinion, it begins with an earthquake when it says Jesus' ministry has just kicked off. The resurrection and death are where we hang our hat. You don't want to, but you've got to wait on God. And by the way, if you hadn't been baptized in the Spirit... You need to be baptized in the Spirit because that's where it all begins. Will you pray with me? Jesus, help us right now to do whatever we need to do to be in a good, stead, good relationship with you. We love you and we praise your name. Amen. Tonight, you're here and you're a Christian. I want to ask you, Christian, you got the Holy Spirit. Is he bottled up in your toe or is he flowing out of your ears? Man, let him loose. Maybe you need to come tonight and repent and get things right with Christ. Come do that. Let the Holy Spirit dominate you like he wants to. Maybe you want to join the church. What kind of church are we? We're a church that's going to continue the ministry of Jesus Christ. That's what you're looking for. Come and join us. Catch me after church. You can join after church. Maybe you're here tonight and you've never given your life to Christ. Boy, what a great night to do that. There's never been a bad night to do that. Come tonight and be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Let's stand. You come now as we sing.